You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss Ghostbusters Afterlife, which came out in 2021. It was directed by Jason Reitman. Egon came out here for a reason. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? You experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? It stars McKenna Grace, Carrie Coon, Paul Rudd, Finn Wolfhard, Logan Kim, Celeste O'Connor, and some familiar faces. The genre would be family, horror, comedy, adventure. Now, some reboots and or sequels dabble in nostalgia, and some just drench themselves in it. Having now seen all four Ghostbusters movies in theaters, I can comfortably say that the first one remains an unassailable genre-hybrid classic, and the rest of the movies from 89's Part 2 on have strained in different ways to completely escape its shadow, mainly because that 84 original movie was just such a case of lightning in a bottle. And that said, I have still enjoyed each Ghostbusters movie for the most part, and I think that Ghostbusters Afterlife might be the best follow-up yet. Now, Ghostbusters 2, revisiting that one. Ghostbusters 2 has always been an enjoyable watch because it's still fun to revisit these characters just a few years later. And Peter McNichol and Vigo, the Carpathian, were pretty entertaining additions to this universe. That said, it's pretty much structured exactly like the original film, beat for beat, in such obvious ways to the point of distraction. Also, the comedy of part two is much tamer. It almost feels like a kiddier version of the original film at times, and it never quite finds its footing as a standalone film. Now, Ghostbusters 2016. This is a film that I have and will continue to defend, especially from the red pill wackos who threw tantrums online in response to its very existence. You had one proven comedy director, Paul Feig, who was up to the task, and four very funny comedic actresses, Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Leslie Jones, and Kate McKinnon, several of whom had worked together before and were also up to the task of bringing the funny, which they did. The problem was that the folks behind the scenes were so over-concerned with dishing out fan service. Bill Murray himself has an extended cameo in the Ghostbusters 2016 movie, and he's playing someone who's not named Peter Venkman, and it's just distractingly bad. And that brings us to Afterlife in 2021, which for the most part overcomes a key design flaw, which I had feared sight unseen, just based on the trailers, would sink this movie. Trying to give reverence to a world which tonally was completely irreverent from its inception. I mean, the trailers for Ghostbusters Afterlife, they've just been so earnest in tone. Now, I've always enjoyed this world and these characters, but the last thing I wanted was to have my heartstrings pulled like some Ron Howard-like 80s dirge or a maudlin Pixar movie. I'm fine with crying at movies. I'm fine with getting emotional. But that's just not what I want from the Ghostbusters. Sorry. Fortunately... 
Jason Reitman has directed a relatively breezy affair, which does provide some pathos for the family at its core, but maintains a light tone throughout. It respects its characters and is generally pretty sincere, but it's never above also enjoying and even acknowledging the absurdity of the situations that its main characters find themselves in. McKenna Grace is very engaging as our main protagonist, Phoebe, a teenage loner who is obsessed with science and has just moved to a mysterious, dilapidated house out in the country with her single mother, Callie, played by the always good Carrie Coon. Loved her in The Leftovers and Gone Girl. And her slightly older goofball brother, Trevor, played by Finn Wolfhard, who is one of the stars of some popular Netflix show, which I hear the kids are watching. It's called Stranger something. I don't know. They are all the progeny of Dr. Egon Spengler, one of the original Ghostbusters played by the late, great Harold Ramis, whose scientist character recently passed under very mysterious circumstances and left them this house and dirt farm. And it contains a lot of secrets and gear related to ghosts, which are gradually discovered by both kids, especially Phoebe. Her feet are planted. Her face is poised. Will this be the moment of her death? Nobody knows. It's the best thing I've ever seen. Did I hit it? You didn't hit it! You destroyed it! The driving force of this story, and a lot of the fun, comes from the discovery of the various ghost-busting goodies, including proton packs, paranormal sensors, and of course the iconic Ecto-1 ghost-busting vehicle, which has also had some nifty modifications made to it. These sequences are probably the best in the movie, as they have a lived-in tactile nature to them. Now, yes, Reitman is trading heavily on fanboy nostalgia with constant visual reminders of that first movie with stuff like this, but he still delivers some punch with several fun set pieces. It all generally works, and that certainly helped if you love the original movie as much as I did. But the performances from the cast sell it well, and they're all engaging, including a local science-obsessed teacher, Mr. Gruberson, who eventually joins the mix, played by Paul Rudd, befriending Phoebe along with another plucky fellow student nicknamed Podcast because this is 2021 and aspiring shock jock just wouldn't have applied, who is played winningly by Logan Kim. Also providing some nice support is Celeste O'Connor, who plays Lucky, a local burger joint waitress whom Wolfhard's Trevor becomes enamored with, and who also joins him along in some increasingly dicey missions to sniff out local spirits. What are you doing here in Somerville, anyway? Honestly, my mom won't say it, but we're broke. We just got evicted, and the only thing that's left in our name is this creepy old farmhouse our grandfather left us in the middle of nowhere. No offense. I'm not offended. This place is a dump. Then why do you live here? I'm fourth generation dump. Speaking of Rudd, Paul Rudd, I've always been a huge fan of Rudd, especially his stellar hot streak of R-rated comedic gems between 2005 and 2010, including 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Role Models, and I Love You Man. I would honestly put that run up against even the best comedy hot streaks mustered by even Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin, Jim Carrey, you name it. And even though Rudd, the Rudd, even though he settled down quite a bit in recent years, taking more grown-up roles while also becoming the sexiest man alive, 
His gift for comedy has never wavered, even after being sucked into the Marvel machine the past several years. Rudd's Mr. Gruberson kind of becomes a key avatar for the audience. Hi. Hello again. You brought them home. It's a service I provide. All right. Well, I'm, I'm also an escort. That came out okay. wrong. Yep. Look, the truth is, is I've always kind of wondered what lurked inside this haunt box. Right. Well, the only thing lurking inside here is my slowly dying soul. Is that what that smell is? Well, it's not dinner, so. <laughs> um, would you? Sure. Like? Yeah. I don't have any food. It's okay. fine. Tour. Great. Great. As unlike most of the people in this world, as the movie presents them, he actually acknowledges the existence of ghosts, which would make sense because this movie takes place 37 years after the first Ghostbusters. It's kind of strange how we're talking about a very well-filmed and well-publicized attack on a major city by several large ghosts, including a 100-foot-tall marshmallow man, isn't really acknowledged or even remembered seemingly by most of the people in this world. And that probably brings me to one of the bigger flaws of this film. There sometimes feels like a disconnect between what we are seeing on screen and how characters process it. Now, it kind of makes sense for Grace's Phoebe to not seem particularly affected by the appearance of ghosts, as it's established early on how she's much more analytical like her late grandfather was. She's just not very emotional. She doesn't get visibly scared. But besides her, most of the other major characters don't really react much to them either outside of Rudd, who was entertainingly bug-eyed during his encounters with said ghosts, especially the reemergence of Gozer's terror dogs. Remember those dogs? And in a seemingly ponderous but also very entertaining sequence, he also deals with an army of small little stay-puffed marshmallow men who are now seemingly cannibalistic. <laughs> So these kids seem plucky and resourceful, but rarely seem scared of ghosts. And that seems to be the case with most of the rest of the folks around this small rural town. And maybe that's because this takes place within a society where public knowledge of paranormal creatures lurking about has been common knowledge for decades, which just makes this more confusing. <laughs> so yeah, taken as a direct sequel to the first Ghostbusters movie, I was always a bit confused at times regarding the context of whether the existence of visible ghosts is a big deal in this particular society. You can never really tell. And that brings me to the extended climax for this movie, which is pretty fun, but also seems to lift almost every narrative beat from the climax of that first 1984 film, including sidelining two characters in particular, which to me felt like a bit of a missed opportunity. Now, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking about the climax. So yeah, disappointingly, we do not get to see Paul Rudd's spirited science nerd fight any ghosts in the end. Who we do get to see fight alongside our kid protagonist is, well, you could probably guess as it's even hinted at in the trailer, and it is fun seeing the original gang together. It even leads to an emotional conclusion, which I could see coming miles away. I mean, really, it's telegraphed pretty well. And yet, I still found it very affecting. So like the two previous Ghostbuster films, this one struggles a bit to be its own distinct thing, but it's generally well-acted, well-written, and well-paced, overall resulting in a genuinely entertaining movie. 
Nothing can ever come close to the acerbic gonzo magic of the 84 original. But props to Jason Reitman and crew for still delivering the fun. Bustin still makes me feel good. And now for a quick shout out. Are you looking for conversational interviews with interesting people from different walks of life? Then head on out on the open highway with host Eric Erickson. The Open Highway podcast has new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday and can be found wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Check them out. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Ghostbusters Afterlife has a clever but somewhat overdone score by Rob Simonson, which is constantly aping themes and beats from Elmer Bernstein's score for the 1984 original. It's fun and kind of old school for the most part, but it does distract at times. For me, the choice for this category is quite obvious, and has been the same for three of the four Ghostbusters movies, with Ghostbusters 2 being the exception, having the quite underrated On Our Own by Bobby Brown on its soundtrack. I love that song. Yep, because when you're thinking about the pantheon of great movie songs, great needle drops, who are you going to call? <laughs> Ray Parker Jr., of course. Yes, that Ray Parker Jr., the accomplished pop-slash-R&B artist who started performing in the early 60s, has released four high-charting studio albums as a solo artist, and over the years has collaborated with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Shaka Khan, and Barry White. He's had a great career. Oh, and he also wrote and performed a little mid-tempo pop ditty called Ghostbusters. As has apparently been the tradition for the previous three Ghostbusters movies, this one plays over a snappy end credit sequence, and this is the best needle drop. That brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Did you know that Bokeem Woodbine was in this movie? <laughs> I really had no idea until he showed up. Why cast a strong actor like Bokeem Woodbine as your town sheriff, no less, if you're just going to give him barely one scene? Now, it is a pretty fun scene as we find our young new Ghostbusters in jail with all their equipment impounded. But still, there's dramatic opportunity there as you could have some building tension with the local law enforcement while a new army of ghosts is invading your small town. But alas, none of that is explored. And when it's time for our new band of paranormal fighting heroes to retrieve their equipment to save the day, Woodbine Sheriff, he doesn't even play a part in that scene. It's just a waste. And that brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. 
For me, the best standout sequence is about halfway through when all four kids have joined forces to chase down one nasty muncher ghost while driving around town in the Ecto Cruiser. Now, keep in mind, of course, that none of these kids are old enough to drive, but never mind. This particular ghost kind of resembles the green Slimer from the first two movies, except that he's actually blue, and he's quieter, and he's more menacing. Or he, she, it, whatever you want to call him, he just loves munching on metal, which he can then weaponize by spitting out metal shards as bullets. So while Trevor nervously drives their cruiser in pursuit, Phoebe suddenly finds herself extending out of the car within a mechanical gunner seat, where she starts shooting at this blue floating apparition while in hot pursuit. Needless to say, not all of the streams shot from her proton pack land where they should, and a lot of damage is done along Main Street on their way towards eventually trapping this ghost. It's just a gorgeously executed action sequence that's mostly filmed in camera with a lot of seamless CGI utilized for both Muncher and the streams of lasers coming at him. It's a great scene. Can you stop breathing in my ear? No. You guys, this is kind of stupid. Are you sure you didn't see, like, a raccoon or, like... A possum? There! Is that a free-floating metal muncher? Definitely class five. Okay, uh, what do we do? Let's get him. What? Let me get a photo first. It has a gunner seat? And that brings me to the final category, which would be MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Jason Reitman is a second-generation director who really kicked off his feature career with some strong films starting around 2006. Thank You for Smoking, Juno, Up in the Air, Young Adult. That's a pretty strong opening four as far as I'm concerned. Each of these films were smart, funny, and mainly focused on complicated characters who were both likable and frustrating at different times. Featuring some very strong performances from the likes of George Clooney, Charlize Theron, Aaron Eckhart, and then Ellen Page. And then after that, he kind of tailed off for several years with some weaker films. Though I hear that Tully, his postpartum depression drama starring Charlize Theron from just a couple of years ago, I heard that was pretty good. I just haven't seen it. Reitman has always come off as a good actor's director with a good sense of character and pacing. He generally brings those qualities to the latest installment of a franchise, which was actually started by his father, Ivan Reitman, who directed the first two Ghostbusters movies. Though this film is far from perfect, and not on the level of the original film, Jason still lives up to his father's legacy, threading the needle for a property which has proven challenging, to say the least. Just ask Paul Feig and his female leads from the last Ghostbusters, who were just unfairly savaged online about five years ago. But back to Jason. Considering he has never really directed a full-on genre film like this before, he acquits himself well with the various action and suspense set pieces. He does a nice job of incorporating the lore, and he keeps the story generally character-focused. And of course, he also delivers a touching, sort of tribute to the late Harold Ramis and the role he played with this franchise. The mere task of delivering a generally satisfying sequel to Ghostbusters was pretty daunting. Jason Reitman proved himself up to the task, and for that reason, he is the MVP. I grew up as a fan. I had a flight suit, I had the t-shirt, I had the hat. Now at this age, 
I find myself trying to understand who my father is and who he was when he made this film. You know, I am now the age that my father was when he made the original Ghostbusters movie. And I'm trying to understand him in the same way that Phoebe and Callie are trying to understand where they came from. My rating for Ghostbusters Afterlife would be three and a half stars out of five. I have to admit that I enjoyed this movie more than I expected. It does really help to have seen that original movie to truly appreciate this movie's overall story. If you're looking to see Ghostbusters Afterlife, it is now only playing in theaters, and I would highly encourage you to do so. And that ends another ectoplasmic review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.